one of the pastors here, and if you have a Bible with you, would you please open that to the book of 1 John? Uh, if, if you don't have a Bible with you, we have a rack right outside the door over here that has hardback Bibles you can borrow, paperback Bibles you can keep. So it's when you come to church, you should have a Bible open in front of you so that you can look at what I'm talking about and make sure that what I'm saying is what this book says and not just what I think. So if you need a Bible, feel no shame about going to grab one. 1 John is towards the end of the New Testament, just a couple books before the book of Revelation, and we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. And this is what God's Word says. And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure." Would you pray with me? Our Father, we have loved to already be singing this morning about turning our eyes to the heavens, about the king returning for his own, about the one who is the lion, the one who is the lamb, about him gathering us to himself. We love thinking about that. God, thank you that we can see in your word that he is coming. Thank you for this book that you have given us, alive and full of truth about you. And we pray, God, that you would come and that in this time, as we look at what you have said, that we would, we would hear you speaking to us again and that you would fill us with hope and joy and strength and all that we need. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, our, our passage this morning describes a relationship between two great realities, one of which everybody sees as a necessity for living, and another of which relatively few people believe in or even think about. And that the first reality, this universal necessity, is hope. Now, I have recently been going through something, um, wrestling through something that I know a lot of the dads uh, have been through or will go through at some point. I've been trying to decide when to introduce my children to Star Wars. So um, I, I've, been, I've been going back. It's, I, Kim will tell you this is a big deal for me. I've been going back through the movies and you know, reviewing them, trying to, uh, uh, trying to assess their age appropriateness. I've got a seven-year-old and a five-year-old boy just trying to see, are they ready for this? Is, is this going to work? So uh, in episode three, which you will all remember is actually the sixth movie that came out, there's a certain character. I'm going to try to do this with no spoilers for the kids who are still here. Dads, you can thank me later. There's a character 
In that movie, a, a woman whose husband has just turned to the dark side of the force, okay? And this woman is in childbirth, and something is clearly going wrong. And so there's, the doctor is a, a robot, obviously, Star Wars, and so this droid says to Obi-Wan Kenobi, we, she's perfectly healthy, but we're losing her. She seems to have lost the will to live, so because she's, she's on the verge of something that should be incredible joy, right? She's welcoming children into the world, but she's just wasting away because she's lost what? She's lost hope. She has no expectation of future good that makes her feel like what she's going through is worth it. Now contrast that with uh, one of my favorite movies, which is The Shawshank Redemption. Okay, In, in The Shawshank Redemption, Andy Dufresne has been uh, sentenced to life in prison for something he insists he didn't do. And, and in prison, he's subject to attacks from other inmates, injustice from the warden and the guards, solitary confinement, and yet in prison, he's able to live as a free man, enjoying music and books and walks in the yard, even his work. Why? Because he never loses hope that he's going to one day get out and be free from the darkness he's walking through. So you have, one, you have one person who's going through something that should be this occasion of incredible joy, and she's just wasting away. And this other guy who's in one of the darkest places you can imagine, and he's flourishing. He's, he's seemingly unaffected by it. And the difference is that one of them has hope, and the other has lost it. Hope is a universal necessity. In this world, we will all have trouble. And in order to walk through it, we we're, we're going to need some assurance that hardship won't have the last word. That what we're going through will end, and ultimately, at the end of all things, all shall be well. And this is what we want to say to one another. This is what everybody wants to be able to say when, when the diagnosis is cancer, when your spouse is deployed into combat, when you have a friend and, and they're, they're grieving with you because their kids won't call, you want to be able to say, everything is going to be okay. It's going to work out in the end. But if we're honest, often when we say that, we don't actually know that it will. What we want is a hope that is sure, a hope we can count on, a hope we can speak with confidence. And in this passage, John holds out a hope like that. That's this, this second reality the second reality to which John ties hope is the return of Jesus Christ to earth. What John calls twice in this passage, when he appears. Now, if you're, if you're not a Christian, belief in the return of Jesus, it might sound silly. It might sound kind of on the order of belief in the return of George Washington. And not just silly, but unnecessary. You might think, yes, Jesus was a great teacher. Yes, I'm glad he came once. But what could be the point of him coming again? What, what more could he have to teach? And so you have to understand that in Scripture, the return of Jesus is the culmination of all he came to do, which was way more than teaching. In the person of Jesus, God became man to reconcile all of creation to himself, to restore to all of creation the perfection it enjoyed when he first made it, before sin came into the world. At his first coming, Jesus began that work by living a perfect life, dying on the cross, rising from the dead in order to reconcile to God everyone who will trust in him. So he began his work with reconciling humanity to God, but when he comes again, 
he will finish that work by ridding the world of all suffering, all injustice, all death, all sin. He'll make all things new. And because he's coming to rid the world of sin, that means that for humanity, his coming will be a day of judgment. There will be some people to whom Jesus says, Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my joy. And there will be other people to whom Jesus says, Depart from me, I never knew you. There will be a dividing. And you can see that in this passage. If you look at verse 28, he says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. When, when Jesus comes, there will be some people who will be able to approach him with confidence, boldness even, knowing that with him they will find welcome and approval and embrace. And others will shrink back in shame because they will know that they don't belong to him, that they, they don't have a place with him. And this passage holds out the hope that we can know Today, that that day will be a day for us of joy and not fear, of embrace and not rejection, that that day will be the end of all sad things and the beginning of life that is truly life. We can have a sure hope. So we, we want to look at this hope that this passage holds out by asking three questions of it. Who has this hope? What is this hope? And what is this hope produce in us? Who has it? What is it? And what does it produce? So first, who has this hope? John says, it's the children of God. The children of God. Look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So John says that the person who can face that day with confidence is the person who practices righteousness, who does what is right, like God does what is right. And, and he says that the people who do that, the people who practice righteousness, are God's children. He says they've been born of him. But we will misunderstand John if we don't pay really close attention to him right now. Because notice what he, he didn't say, everyone who practices righteousness will be born of him, or everyone who practices righteousness deserves to be born of him. He says, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. They have already been born of him. So the reason people who live rightly can be confident in the face of God's judgment is not that they've been good enough to deserve his acceptance. It's, they can have confidence because their living rightly shows that they have already been born of God. They've become his children. They have his life inside of them, and that life is changing them from the inside out to make them look like him. The, the people who can confidently face God's judgment are not those who clear a certain bar of righteousness, whose good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. It's those who know that they're God's children. So let me, let me see if I can illustrate this. You have, you have to imagine, so I've got three kids. Imagine that my kids are all blonde hair, okay? They're not, but my boys were when we lived in the Caribbean and we were in the sun 360 days a year, but a Wisconsin winter has driven them decidedly into brunette territory. But just imagine, for the sake of the illustration, that I've, I've got three blonde-headed kids and they're running around somewhere where there's a bunch of kids kind of mixing up. Imagine kind of the lobby after the service, all these kids running around. Imagine my kids are the only blonde kids, a bunch of brown-haired kids up there, and I say, all right, I need the blonde-haired kids to get their coats and meet the, at the door because we're going out for pizza. And now you could imagine the other kids saying, wait, why, 
The, just the blonde-haired kids get pizza? Why, that doesn't seem fair. Why did the blonde-haired kid get pizza? It's not because they're blonde. It's because the blonde-haired kids are my kids. I'm taking my kids out for pizza. It's the same thing here. It's not, it's not the being righteous, the doing righteousness that, that makes a person safe for God, from God's judgment. We could never be righteous enough for that. It's the being his child that makes us safe. And the practicing righteousness shows that we are. So, how does a person become a child of God if it's not through living rightly? Well, we can see it in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The children of God become the children of God through the gift of his love. John doesn't say how great our obedience that we should be called children of God. He says how great the love we've been given. So what kind of love is it that God has given? John tells us in chapter 4 of this letter, beginning in verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So what kind of love has God shown to make us his children? It's the kind of love that sends a beloved son to die in our place to take the punishment our sins deserve. That's what that word propitiation means. The children of God are not those who have lived rightly and deserve his acceptance. They're those who have seen this love, the love of God giving his son so we might live through him and have embraced that gift through faith. And the Bible says that when you, when you embrace his love in sending Christ, you're born of him, born again, born into his family, where before you were alienated from him, by faith you are reconciled to him, united to him. Where before you were spiritually dead, you're made spiritually alive. He gives you a new heart with new desires. He puts his own spirit within you. And what happens? You begin to take on the family resemblance. You begin to look like he looks. You begin to practice righteousness. You show that you've been born of him, and you start to get from the world, the same kinds of reactions that he got. Look at the end of verse 1. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And seeing the change in your life builds your confidence for the day when Christ appears. But there, it's, it's important for me right here to address a group of people this morning who didn't hear that as good news. There are people who every time they hear someone something like that, these are people of tender conscience, and they hear that and they think, okay, but how... How righteous is righteous enough? How, how good do I need to be to have assurance that I am a child of God? That I do have new life? How, how do I know that I'm real? The first thing to say is that what John calls here practicing righteousness is not perfection. And I know that because of what he says in chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
John expects that Christians will sin. We shouldn't, but we will. He expects that Christians will need forgiveness, that we'll need assurance that our standing before God isn't dependent on our own righteousness, but on Jesus Christ, the righteous. Don't let the ongoing presence of some sin in your life rob you of the assurance that you're God's child. What John tells you to look for is not perfection, but direction. Not, not perfection, but progress. Is the pattern of your life wanting to do right and please God, even though you fall short of it? Do, do you see, even if just in tiny ways, that you're changing? John's not looking for perfection. He's just looking for signs of life. We've probably all had the experience of looking at a baby. Sometimes you look at a baby and you think, oh, no question whose kid this is. But sometimes you look and you think, I'm not, I'm not sure who he looks like. I don't. But five years later, you see him again, and he unmistakably has his mother's eyes. And 15 years later, he's the spitting image of his father. Family resemblance can take some time to emerge. What's important is, if you're lacking assurance that you're a child of God, don't look mainly to your performance to gain it. Look mainly at the love that God has shown in sending his son, Jesus Christ the righteous, and put your trust in him. But there's another group here who may be too quick to assure yourselves. You, you may consider yourself a Christian and yet know right now that the pattern of your life is not practicing righteousness. It's not that you're trying to please God and live his way and falling short. There are areas of your life where you're not trying at all, and you know it. Maybe it's with sexuality. Maybe it's with money. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at home. You know that Sunday morning you isn't the real you. And you should not assure yourself that you're fine before God, that your righteousness is his and not your own. Those who are born of God practice righteousness. His life in us changes us. As, as John says in chapter 1, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There's an area of your life where you are knowingly, stubbornly refusing to obey God. You need to repent and seek the forgiveness available in Christ. But if you have received the love of God in sending his son, if you see him changing you, then John says you can face the future with hope. So who has this hope? It's the children of God. What is the hope? It's seeing and sharing the likeness of Christ. Seeing and sharing the likeness of Christ. John tells us in chapter 3, verse 2, what will happen for God's children when Christ returns. This is what he says. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall see him as he is. We shall see him face to face. I think the longer you've been a Christian, the more this promise means to you. We will see the face of Christ. Some of you have been walking with him for 40 years or 50 or 70, you have depended on him for comfort, for forgiveness, for strength, for hope, but you've never seen him. You will. You will look on his face. Everyone in Christ will look on the face of perfect love and see that it's turned to us. The same Jesus who walked the streets of Capernaum, 
who hung on the cross of Calvary, who emerged from the grave, who ascended on high, who is at this moment at the right hand of God interceding for us, he and we will look on one another's faces. We will know fully, even as we have been fully known. And when we look upon him, we will see humanity as it always should have been, full of joy and goodness and strength. And John tells us that when we see him, by God's power, we will be changed to look like him. We will be transformed into his likeness perfectly. And when, when the Bible talks about the way we'll be changed when he comes, it doesn't just mean morally. It doesn't just mean we'll be rid of sin. We'll be rid once and for all of sickness and weakness and pain and mortality. We'll be rid of death. It'll be the end of goodbyes. Everyone who has died hoping in Christ will be raised and changed with us and we will be together with the Lord forever. One of my, one of my favorite book series is called The Green Ember. It's, a, it's about rabbits who have swords and they, they fight. They're in this, this battle against uh, their enemies, these armies of wolves and birds of prey. And so the, the forest which had been their home. It was once a place of safety and beauty and rest. It's become a place of fear and danger. But these, they have this hope, this sure hope, that one day a king will arise who will defeat their enemies and, and make the forest again a place of safety. And so when they suffer defeats and griefs and betrayals, these rabbits say to one another, it will not be so in the mended wood. It will not be so in the mended wood. And that's the hope we have, that, that no evil in us or outside us gets the final word. That there's a day on which all these things will have passed away. Now, you, not, you may not believe that it's true. I don't assume that everybody here is a Christian. You may not believe this is true, but don't you wish that it were? We recoil at the idea of injustice going eternally unpunished or of the world never being healed. And the Bible says all sin will be dealt with either at the judgment or on the cross. The Bible says everything will be made new. So even if you, even if you believe that death is the end and after that's nothing, I can't imagine you're happy about that. How much better if it were true that car accidents and cancer don't get the last word, that there is a life ahead for us and for the whole creation with no tears, no pain, no death. The Bible says that Christians can wait for that world with confidence. Every other hope will fail us. We can hope that nobody we love will get sick, but we can't make it so. We can hope to make enough money to insulate us from the world's dangers, but there are things money can't buy and things money can't stop. We can hope that scientific progress or political action will finally bring about peace and justice, but we certainly can't get that hope from looking at our track record. If there's hope for us, it must come from outside us. And John tells us that the hope we need is the hope of when he appears, when we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So this hope is for the children of God. It is seeing and sharing Christ's likeness, and it produces something in everyone who has it. What? What does this hope produce? An empowered effort to share Christ's likeness now. An empowered effort to share Christ's likeness now. You might think that if we know that when Jesus comes, we'll be welcomed into eternal joy, that when Jesus comes, we'll be perfected and rid of all sin, that there's, that there's then no reason to make any effort now. It's a done deal. So why not live however we want? 
But look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Not, not everyone who thus hopes in him takes it easy. Not everyone who hopes in him drifts. Sin's no big deal. Jesus will take care of it in the end. No, everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. For the children of God, it's not enough to know that we'll be like him someday. We want to be like him now. Why? Because we love him. We, we read a verse together in worship last Sunday from 1 Peter that's true of everyone who has received the love of God and become his child. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. We love him. We don't want to dishonor him or displease him. We rejoice to know that someday we'll be perfectly like him, but we don't want to wait. We want to be like him now. And John says actually that that hope, that certainty we have is what motivates us, that everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, that we know that we will be like him. We know we will be like him. We, we, We know that this effort will not fail, and so we can give ourselves to it now. We can work hard at purifying ourselves. But I'm guessing that for some of you, you're, you're doing maybe a double take at verse 3 and saying, wait, we're supposed to purify ourselves? Isn't it God who purifies us? Well, it's both. And the, way, the key to understanding this is back up in chapter 2, verse 28. He says, And now, little children, abide in him. So if, if you're a Bible reader, what does that remind you of? John is consciously echoing Jesus there. So back in John's Gospel, chapter 15, Jesus talks about what it means to abide. So you don't need to turn there, but I'm going to read from John 15, verse 5. This is Jesus talking to his disciples the night before his death. And this is what he says. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So what's the picture there? The picture Jesus is painting is is that Jesus is this vine. He's full of life, full of fruit-bearing potential, and everyone who's trusted in him is like a branch off that vine. And just like if if the branches abide in the vine, they bear fruit. If we abide in him, if we're connected to his life, then then his life flows into us and he bears fruit through us, right? Right? Can we purify ourselves without him? No. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But can we purify ourselves abiding in him, depending on him, growing closer and closer to him? Yes. Christian, you can change. Some of us, we, can, we hear this call, purify yourselves as he is pure, and we, we feel defeated even before we start. We say, well, what is the point I've been trying to change, and I'm getting nowhere, right? We, we try, we say, this time I'm going to speak patiently and kindly, and we blow it. Or we say, I, I'm going to worry less about money, and I'm going to be more generous. And then when it comes right down to it, we just can't, we can't make ourselves do it. Or we say, this is the year I'm going to break this addiction, and it's already February, and we've gotten nowhere in that. It's easy to get discouraged. That's not, that's not all of us. But that's some of us, and that's why we need this passage. We need to hear, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We need to hear, abide in him, so we may have confidence when he comes. John doesn't expect you to do this on your own. 
He expects you to do this in the power of Christ. This isn't a call to effort alone. It's a call to empowered effort. You are like a hairdryer. You're like a coffee maker. You are like a, a KitchenAid mixer. You have abilities that are useless unless you're connected to power. And Jesus says that the power is his and that one of these abilities we have is the power to change. We can purify ourselves. Now, you will never be perfect until Jesus comes. You will never not need him in heaven for you, your sympathetic high priest. But you can change. Even if you've only been a Christian for five weeks or 15 minutes, you can change. Your next five years can be better than the last five if you abide in him. So how do we abide in him? He doesn't, he doesn't give us step-by-step instructions. That's not how relationships work. But he gives us pointers. Now the first is in chapter 2, up in verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. So he says that we will abide in Christ if what we heard from the beginning abides in us. What did we hear from the beginning? Well, he tells us it's the promise of eternal life. What we heard from the beginning is the good news about Jesus. The gospel that the Son of God took on humanity, obeyed God perfectly in our place, died for us, rose on our behalf, and in so doing provides us with eternal life. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And John tells us, if you want to abide in him, that word needs to abide in you. So how does that word abide in us? Is it through coming here on Sunday mornings? Yes. Hearing God's word preached, singing it together? Absolutely. Is, how else? Is it through taking DT classes, getting to know our Bibles? Absolutely. But the, if the gospel is going to abide in you, you need a life with God in Scripture that exists apart from and outside of just being taught by others. About a month ago, Jared Compton stood up here and he challenged us from that story with Mary and Martha. Do you remember this? He challenged us to, like Mary, to be devoted to the words of Christ, to devote ourselves this year to what Scripture says. So we're a month in. Remember he said we should make a plan, tell someone our plan, we should follow the plan. How's your plan going? If we're going to abide in Christ, we need to have a renewed commitment to his word abiding in us. But there's something else we need to abide, something vital. When John tells us little children abide in him, he's not calling us to do something on our own. He's saying, you, y'all, you together abide in Christ. Look at all the we's in this passage. We are God's children. What we will be has not yet appeared. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. Abiding in him is something we do together. We will all at times need to be reminded of our hope. We're going to need someone to say to us, it will not be so in the mended wood. We're going to need someone to say, I love you, brother, and I'm concerned that in this area, you're not purifying yourself as he is pure. Remember your hope. Alone, we're prone to wander. Alone, we're easily deceived. But together, we can abide. So to abide, you need this word, but you also need a community. This community, or one like it. 
And when we're abiding in him, we can change. We can turn from thoughts and behaviors that aren't pleasing to God, that don't look like Jesus. We can put on, slowly but surely, his likeness. We can do it knowing that one day, when we see him, we shall become perfectly like him. The sure hope of God's people, God's children, produces an empowered effort to bear the family resemblance. That's what John is telling us. The sure hope of God's children produces an empowered effort to bear the family resemblance. Do you have this hope? Can you say with John, I know that when he appears, I will be like him. Are you able to abide confidently holding on to him because you know that he's going to hold on to you? If not, please know that the Jesus is, who is coming one day is the same Jesus who once hung on a cross and prayed for his enemies, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He is merciful and kind. He's the same Jesus we heard about last week who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who, is, who loves to help us in time of need. If you will put your trust in him, you will receive the love of God and know that you belong to his family and you will have hope even in the darkest times and places. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we express to you right now our hope in your coming, our confidence that, that you are coming and that when you do, we will be like you because we will see you as you are. And our hope is not rooted in our performance in our goodness, our hope is rooted in what you have already done for us, in dying for us, in rising for us, in interceding for us, in sending your spirit, in making us alive. And so we are eager for your coming. We say, come Lord Jesus, make this world new, make us new. Give us the joy of our master. We long for that day, God, and I pray that you would today strengthen our hope, that you would help us to abide in you, to depend on you, to receive in ourselves your life that changes us. God, make us a changed people, a people practicing righteousness. Let us be that city on a hill, Jesus, as you've said, a people that bring glory to you as we go about our lives in the world. Transform us through this hope glorify yourself in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.